Welcome to Why Advice, a regular podcast aimed at financial clarity and demystifying financial advice. Welcome, Tristan. Uh, morning, Daniel. You sounding like a pilot again? Uh, yes, I suppose we've become accustomed to uh, a bit of lack of clarity, I suppose, with uh, Zoom meetings and over the tech. <laughs> and you were saying there before that you actually used to be a pilot. I was a trainee pilot when I was a young fella, so that had, that had been the plan to become a pilot. Why didn't you? Um, how come that didn't didn't pan out? Well, actually, it was quite expensive, really. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and then actually, I got a real job. That was yeah, one right. of the other things. So yeah, my um, I'd inherited some funds, and when that ran out, I actually had to pay for it myself. So it was a little bit harder, despite <laughs> the the passion, but. Uh, yeah, it was one of those things I was going to get back into, but just uh, life got in the way. So, yeah, because it's one of those things about finding the value. Well, yeah, you know, you look at a lot of pilots now; a lot of them are grounded. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of value, uh, GMO, we were we were an asset management firm, put out a piece on value, which is an interesting read recently, and I'll I'll just um, take um, take a paragraph from it. In the late 1990s, value managers were on the defensive. The value style had been out of favour for more than half a decade. Well-known value firms were losing clients and going out of business. Clients had been led to believe that in the long run, value wins. Yet by 1999, the Russell 1000 index, value index, had underperformed its growth cousin in seven of the preceding 11 years and by huge margins. Countless academic papers were proclaiming the death of value. Ultimately, of course, mean reversion worked and value went on to trounce growth seven years in a row, despite the early pain. Patient, patient investors were ultimately rewarded for their perseverance. From 1999 to 2006, value beat growth by a cumulative 99%. It's interesting points because what they're making, what they're saying is like, this is kind of similar because we've had a, another because you could say poor decade with value or poor time frame, and they're trying to liken, which is what often happens in investing, people trying to liken periods to another period. And, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say, certainly been a challenging uh, period post-GFC with regards to value stocks. Yeah. And recently, there have been a few uh, value rumblings. Um, you can see some of the value funds have been... Uh, coming springing to life over the past few weeks everyone's excited saying that that value's back so i just thought it would it'd be interesting to look at some valuations and kind of shows you what here this is a um a, the vanguard global value equity active fund um and i guess it, it just shows you what, what you might expect from a value fund and you look at the price to earnings ratio um 11.24 uh times against its benchmark which it's not exactly a benchmark, but just something that they're using as a guide. And that's 22.03 times. So value is about half the growth aspect. And price to book is 0.84 times and for the value option, whereas the, the benchmark is 2.21 times. So it's almost three times. And as you can see, one when we don't make calls on on uh, valuations or anything like that. But as you can see, the, the benchmark is, is extremely uh, of a higher value and the value fund is a, a lot lower value is, is what you expect. So what would, it's not exactly a revelation, but it's just a comparison to show that the valuations are high. And I guess the same thing is in, in the Vanguard Small Companies Index Fund, 
Um, the price to earnings is 17.5. Price to book is 1.6 times, which is again, almost double the value. And GMO is making the comparison to 1999, but um, we actually have got data that goes back to 1926. And I guess this is where all the, all the value came from. It was like a farmer and French who, who went back and looked at all these, these periods. And if you want to see an underperformance of value versus growth, the 1930s is, a, is an interesting ex- example. We'll use the farmer French um, research indices as an example. And as you can say, the 1930s was a, was a shocking time for stocks all around. It's the Great Depression, uh, as you'd expect. But US growth uh, was had an annualised return for the, the 1930s of 1.72%. US value was minus 3.18 annualised. So there's a wide variance there. Large growth uh, was 1.72% for the decade. And large value was minus 4.51. Now this is annualised again. So a wide underperformance. And with the S&P 500, it was uh, 0.05% was the annualised return for the decade. So some pretty bad figures there if you're an equity investor over the 1930s. But over the next five years, the the turnaround was kind of astonishing. Um, US growth, annualised return was 4.45. The value was 21.17 percent annualized for the next five years large growth 4.29 and large value was 19.53 percent annualized and the farmer french uh, u.s small was small value was 28.66 annualized over that over that five-year period the s&p 500 was 7.67 annualized return so we can't say that uh, value is going to make a comeback like this but this is why when you have a value tilt to your portfolio that I guess you need to actually believe in it because as GMO was saying in their article, you're liable to give up on it just as value comes raging back. The other thing I think too, Daniel, in layman's terms, putting aside institutional investors is that if you think about what value means, large is generally uh, well known. Uh, It's, you know, its growth prospects are generally quite marginal with uh, lower cost of capital. And then, of course, you've got the other end with the small caps where people identify what small caps are and they're actually trying to find the, the next major winners. And I think sometimes value probably gets squeezed out a little bit, um, whereas basically, you know, a value stock, it's not a company, it's based on the numbers. But I think it probably gets shelved a little bit for lack of understanding, uh, certainly, uh, from you know, mum and dad investors. Yeah, no, that's a good point because I guess everyone understands what a what a large cap is, a growth company. Um, everyone understands what a small company is, but I guess you could say a value is is beaten down and considered undervalued. I guess it's a call on whether it's going to come back or not. But yeah, understand what you're. That's right. There could be a yeah, there could be a multitude of reasons on that. Mm, yeah, that's right. How do you feel about working from home? How do I feel about working from home? Yeah. Uh, 
I am working from home? No, no, because you're about to get taxed on it if you, if you want to work from home, according to Oh, your right. According to Deutsche Bank. Yes. Yeah, so uh, well, I suppose what's the motive behind them putting forward the taxing from home? I'm sure it's probably something to do with their investments in uh, you know, commercial and office space. Well, we, would, we wouldn't want to preempt anything just yet, but uh, <laughs> well, maybe we can get, get to that, that part. But uh, Luke Templeman is, is the guy at uh, Deutsche Bank who's uh, come out with a research report. I think this is his first paragraph I've just, just clipped in. He says, for years we have needed a tax on remote workers. COVID has just made it obvious. Quite simply, our economic system is not set up to cope with people who can disconnect themselves from face-to-face -face society. Uh, I guess, you know, people who, <laughs> who want to be away from other people, they don't want to get taxed for it. But those who can work from home receive direct and indirect financial benefits, and they should be taxed in order to smooth the transition process for those who have suddenly been displaced. So obviously this has come about from COVID. And a lot of people are very concerned now that, uh, I guess you could say, CBDs and those areas are going to be very quiet if people are going to be working from home all the time. And then there's all, all the other people who, I should say, make a living off people moving through CBDs on a regular basis. Well, also, uh, isn't there an environmental impact if there's less people on the roads, uh, less uh, revisit for infrastructure costs and the like? So, um, you know, do they have a valid point? I guess the argument is that uh, I look at it from the perspective that if, if you get something good in life, we're going to make you pay for it. As the argument is that uh, they take the coin from you and they redistribute it to someone else who obviously lost their job um, in one of those service sectors. Um, and the tax suggested is uh, $10 a day in the US. But I guess the interesting thing for me is like I bring my own lunch. I know you ride a bike. I park for free and I like all these different things. It's like, I don't know about you, but I'm trying to minimize my spend on work related issues getting to and from because I understand it's a drag on my own wealth. Agreed. Yes. It gives us choices, I suppose. Um, but uh, yeah, it's certainly I'm, I'm like you. I try and uh, make choices to save money and spend it where I choose. I actually had a quick look at this and if you, if you're taking 10 bucks a day um, is going to work out to about 200 bucks a month. So over 25 years compounded, you get a 7% return um, over 25 years, looking at 162 grand potential wealth <laughs> that you might be giving up because you've been taxed from working from home. It all adds up, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, when you say it's a $10 now, I mean, when the economy shifts, if it, if it does shift and all, all these jobs move elsewhere and it's smoothed out, does the tax eventually go away? When Because the economy obviously shifts jobs from here to there, or does the tax increase? I mean, how long does the, the tax actually stay for? Often taxes get forgotten about after a period of time, a bit like our stamp duties on property that I believe from uh, recollection was supposed to be abolished some years ago um, when GST came in, but they seem to be still hanging around, albeit some changes in some states. Yeah. So what were your, you, you actually went into a hub 
that we had here at work instead of actually working from home because uh, you, had, you had a young fellow who's, who runs around pretty furiously, Correct. doesn't he? <laughs> yes, we, we have a relatively small home with no home office. And I do know some of our colleagues on the mainland had some serious challenges with uh, two professionals working from home with children homeschooling and the like. So yes, I was fairly fortunate that I could come into the office and effectively you know, close the door for the day and um, you know, work in the confines of uh, privacy. Yeah. Uh, using Zoom to interact with our clients um, it's certainly very, very different. Um, from a social point of view, I imagine it'd be very, very challenging for a lot of people to just work from home uh, with screens. It just shows how much of the economic system too is about moving people around and uh, keeping them captured to extract rents from them. Like you, you go about your day, you've got to get up, you go to work, it's gonna, there's a cost for your car, your parking, if you're using public transport. Um, if you grab a coffee on the way, you haven't been, had a chance to eat at home. Um, if you didn't have a chance to make your make your lunch at home, uh, you get you've got to pay out again there. So it's all these things that in the economic system is, is people are now panicking because moving, shifting people around, and having them in various places. I guess it's like one of those things when you get into an airport, you're a captured entity, and you have to spend your money there. Well, that's true, but I refer back to the comment I made about the environment. I think the environment had a bit of a holiday there for a while. Um, I can't recall the exact numbers, but I seem to believe that there was something about the, the reduction in emissions uh, whilst, the, uh, whilst the workers had a breather, the planet actually had uh, some time to take a deep breath itself. But I guess the final point we'll make on this is that there's probably walls between different parts of the investment banks, but they came out with a, uh, another interesting uh, research report recently. I think it was Deutsche Bank, actually, Deutsche Bank, who actually came out with it as well. And not as many people saw this, but I'll just quote the first, first uh, paragraph from it. Several Wall Street banks have come to dominate a corner of US commercial real estate finance over the past seven months, even as the coronavirus pandemic has cast a long shadow over the market. Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan Chase each significantly grew their share of the roughly 550 billion commercial mortgage-backed securities market during the pandemic, according to a new report by Deutsche Bank's research arm. The CMBS market is a type of property finance where Wall Street banks make loans on hotels, skyscrapers and other types of commercial buildings to package into bond deals that investors buy. So the chart which shows uh, which Wall Street banks won and lost um, is interesting because Deutsche Bank pre-COVID, Deutsche Bank pre-COVID was 9%, post-COVID 20% of the market. So <laughs> we don't want to accuse anyone of, uh, of having being self-interested, but obviously these are um, mortgage-backed securities, so they're not exactly holding the bag, but they have a healthy interest in packaging the deals up and making money off them. That's right. Media stories, you, you know, you've always got to see who the source is. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you see one report from Deutsche Bank, you have to go and see what else uh, Deutsche Bank is doing in the market. Yeah, just on property too, Daniel, we've had quite a few clients ask us with regards to their property fund held in their account. And obviously that's a pretty major impact with regards to people staying at home, working from home and not having the ability to shop. But uh, I suppose if you look at it, shopping 
just online um, has its advantages and its disadvantages, but I actually believe shopping is a social, uh, social engagement that many people enjoy. So I imagine once COVID settles and the vaccine's out and we sort of go back to a new normal, that people will be once again filling the shopping malls again, uh, spending their money uh, and just getting out from, from the normal uh, routine of a weekend uh, of life. Yeah, I mean, that's right. You only had to see when uh, what happened in, in Victoria. It was almost like a loaded spring. People just shot out and there were, there were scenes in shopping centres and Bunnings and, and people were, wore, they had their masks on, but they, they were with arm, within arm's length, just packed into like sardines into these, these spaces again, just trying to spend. So they obviously like getting out and about, like you said. Yeah, so, so time will tell, but uh, I'm sure that High Point and Westfield and those sorts of places will be populated with people out and about again. There's a new superannuation platform coming, according to the AFR. It's called uh, Stake. Trading platform called Stake is going to uh, bring out a new SMSF. All right, so I'll, I'll just see what they say here. So it's, Stake is helping a new cohort of young investors establish their own self-managed superannuation funds in a controversial move it hopes will disrupt the antiquated model of big super. The Australian-born US equities broker will roll out a simple, straightforward and low-cost technology process by which its 150,000 mostly millennial users can establish and manage an SMSF. Stake has hired prominent SMSF administrator and technologist Chris Quito to head up the push into this space. Following what it says it I think someone needs an editor here, following what it says should be is feedback from investors that they want to take more control of their own money, including their retirement savings. It is understood the new service would allow consumers to invest both on and off the stake platform in a wide range of assets beyond US stocks. So I took a look at stake. I'd actually never heard about it before. Um, it's not our, our type of thing, but it, it's giving access to US stocks and it's just taking a clip um, on the transfer fee um, on the Forex. But here's the thing, is two issues you don't set up a new super platform for benevolent reasons. You're looking to make a dollar. There's plenty of money floating around in superannuation, I guess, to, to grab. And I, the interesting thing, again, is it, it's the control thing. Yeah, I suppose ultimately it's what grabs people. If it's new and they believe they're getting good value, then they may well get hooked on it. I suppose there are plenty of other opportunities out there. We know that, that Vanguard have worked in that space. Even some of the little micro-investing apps uh, are working in the super space. Uh, sadly, we do know of uh, rumour that, um, or you can speak to this with uh, your exposure and viewing of Twitter and the like that people took the 10,000 that they could out of their super and then sadly blew it all in cryptocurrencies and those sorts of things. But that was outside the super environment from super environment, but potentially giving more people more options and potential control also gives them a greater ability to hurt themselves. Oh yeah, well, there's plenty of examples over social media of people saying, oh, I did this, um, I've blown half of what I took out of the 10 grand. How can I win it back? And it just leads into it being video game stuff. You push pressing buttons, you're pulling levers. And we know for a fact that the less you do, the more successful you'll likely be. And I guess you might call it the passion fingers syndrome. <laughs> the more, more likely you touch things, the more likely you are to screw things up. 
Yeah, that's right. I suppose the one thing is that, you know, we've had people who wanted, who thought they wanted control and someone set them up with a self-managed super fund and a few years down the line, they walk in, uh, they're not sure what they're doing, setting themselves up for bad habits and a lot of them don't really understand the compliance regime around it. And ultimately it comes down to the first word of an SMSF, self thing is too you just have to think because it's pitched at people take control take control take action and you just have to think through it before you go chasing things so we're reminded of a, of a young guy who who was in here and anyway his insurance was organized through super specifically and because it he i think he had a health issue and he heard of this whiz bang new super fund this was a couple of years ago and he oh this is exactly what i want to do i want to invest in this he's on it hook, line and sinker and he's rolled his super over, didn't tell anyone and about uh, a month later, I don't know whether it was his advisor or him, he clicked and his superannuation or, or it might have come through to, to here and his advisor got a message about his super being shut down and he called him up and he said, uh, what are you doing? Uh, and he's like, oh yeah, I rolled over to such and such. He's like, you know all that work that we did to set up your um, insurance so you could actually have the insurance that you needed for you specifically due to your health issues uh, was set up through the superannuation. And, and then two months later, his advisor is there trying to undo the mess he's made because he wanted, uh, wanted the whiz-bang super option and he wanted more control. So you really have to be careful. The other thing too is from a financial point of view, I think that the younger generation, uh, money is perhaps not as tangible. I think also to superannuation is something which is not really seen as theirs, even though it's deferred income for retirement. Yep. And younger generation are also happy to take a bit of risk. So perhaps their income is considerably greater than what they have in super and therefore they're willing to take a higher risk and want control of it. There's so much information out there. Uh, I suppose people believe that uh, they can do better than most. Yeah. Uh, this is why we just have to keep talking about this because young people continually arrive on the scene um, and these things, uh, you know, that when they arrive on the scene, you, you've done it, I've done it. Uh, we think we know it all. And these things are pitched at you, pitched at you, and you, your response is, "Look, you don't know anything, Grandpa. While we're listening to you, this this great new things here, I, I'm totally in control of my money, uh, and we know what what happens when you get control. You're more likely to do something, and investing is a game of stoicism. Right, we've all got phones in our hands, and we're all in control now. And you can look at it every second of the day, and so there's more opportunity to press the button." more opportunity to pull the lever. That's right, and react to what's popular. All right, so I guess we'll get on to the main topic and um, this is a, a reasonably serious one. Um, it's about gifting and we'll start off with gifting and then we'll, we'll get into financial abuse and elder abuse. So this was in the nine newspapers a couple of weeks ago and it was about adult children essentially divorcing their parents. But I just thought it was an interesting angle because it, it got into the angle, the area, I guess you could say, of, of financial abuse. And um, so in 2000, 
there was a, this is a mother and a daughter. In 2009, they started looking for a small place for Ellie, who was the daughter, to buy. And Maggie withdrew $50,000, what remained of my super, to give to her to use the house deposit. Two years later, after selling a house in the country, Maggie gave her daughter a further $100,000, half the cost of the sale to achieve a granny flat interest in the unit Ellie had bought two years earlier with the gifted deposit money. As you find out, the $100,000 in the story, $100,000 didn't go to the unit. It went to the daughter upgrading to a bigger house with her new husband. And her mother, Maggie, uh, was left in purgatory. Uh, she's not in good uh, contact with the daughter and her son-in-law. She's paying the full mortgage um, to them through rent, it seemed to suggest. Uh, she's threatened by... When she raised the concerns, she was threatened with eviction, with eviction by the son-in-law. Um, she's got no idea what comes next, and uh, she's 69. So just imagine being in that sort of situation. Yeah, well, the country and the world have been financially disrupted this year, and certainly there's a section of haves who have done exceptionally well, considering the calamity that's gone on. Um, but there's also a section of the have-nots who have done the reverse and, uh, you know, poorly performed. Yeah. And I mean, this is nothing new, as we say, with the, um, with the work-from-home thing. Economies shift around and there's, there's winners and losers that are being created all the time. Uh, obviously not so widely in, in such a short, short space of time, but I guess the question is, why are people gifting? Well, often it relates back to property. Um, you know, we've been very prosperous for more than a quarter of a century. And, uh, you know, you're judging that based on recessions. Um, but it hasn't happened without creating this you know, large disparity between the have and have nots. And so while you'd expect older generations to have a greater share of wealth, house prices have continued to outpace wages growth. And then that's just skewed the division further. So, um, the younger generation, consolidation, cars, travel, consumer goods all shrunk. Uh, and, um, you know, for, for those people that have been consoling themselves with uh, disposables and consumables uh, rather than bricks and mortar. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those comparisons, like uh, all these things that are temporary, I guess you'd say, are continually going down. Um, whereas, like, the thing that you actually need, shelter, is continually going up. And I guess it's led some parents feeling the need to help kids uh, reach the first rung in the property ladder. So what are the issues? I mean, I guess you could tell us straight off about the, the gifting issues, which is pretty straightforward one. There's not a lot of gifting issues, only if you're, you're on a government benefit, really, isn't it? Correct. That's right. So the rules around gifting are pretty straightforward. So if you're accessing a government benefit, um, you know, if, if you give 10,000 per year with a maximum of 30,000 over any five year period, anything above that then is treated as a deprived asset. So uh, meaning that, you know, it's as though you're still in control of that asset. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much the major impact in terms of, of Centrelink, but outside the bounds of that, if parents have resources, they can gift as much or as little as they want. And that just leads in, when when there's rules there, there's there's the other other concerns around gifting. Though, and it's the, the psychology. Um, so it, it's because it's money, and money is always uh, got psychological issues attached to it. And then it's family, and it's all real people with various influences. And you may, you may 
give to your children and they may behave differently or even you may take money from someone else and your parents and they may behave differently than what we expect or hope. So as with investing, um, monetary gift giving prompts issues of risk and behaviour and from the giver's side, I guess we could, we could take a look at those. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we can yeah, highlight some of the reasons why parents feel that they should gift. Um, so obviously a big one is guilt. Uh, if the parent feels that there were past inadequacy in the lifestyle and opportunities or time provided, then parents may feel the need to make up for it. Uh, Vanity is another one. It's a competitive world. Uh, it's a look at me world. People feel good when their children do well. So it's even better when you can boast about the new home or investment property that they've picked up. So, uh, but it doesn't sound as impressive if you've put a stake in it yourself. I guess there's also perception. Um, the giver may feel that the action is reinforcing something they feel about themselves, that they're a giving person. And uh, assumption of the idea that the act will engender some sort of consideration or goodwill down the line and assumptions um, are all well and good. And none of these, but they can go wrong. And none of these things are good reasons for gifting they're more emotion than logic um because at the end of the day the the overriding reason for, for gifting is is only one thing and that's financial capacity if you have the financial capacity to gift um without any kind of long-term concerns then as you said you can justify it to yourself however you like if not you really have to set aside any emotional considerations and consider the implications yeah, that's right. It's one thing to give someone 100000 if you've got $1.6 in super and own your own house outright um, and you're relatively frugal in your existence. But, you know, it's certainly another thing if you're coming to some convoluted agreement to pull a large amount of, you know, small super balance or redraw on your mortgage um, when you're not working any longer to pay it off. Yeah. I think one of our favourite definitions of risk is um, by... Economist Elroy Dimson, and he, he wants to find it as more things can happen than will happen. And you have a broad universe of all these various things that can that can go wrong. Only a certain number of them may, but you have to consider them the possibilities of all of them. And if we take this definition and apply it to parents gifting large sums to adult children without having the capacity, I mean, there's a whole universe of potential disaster. Oh, it sure is. You know, you've got to understand whether or not it's a gift or a loan or a stake. Uh, important to understand the definition plus the paperwork as well. So not actually leaving any sort of documentation or paper trays is a real challenge, um, you know, because believing one thing and another uh, can certainly make the relationship turn sour. Yeah. You've got the capacity to work. If you're, if you're going to dedicate a few more years in the salt mines as we'll call them um to earning back the gift given maybe that's what your plan is you need to hope that you actually work long enough because if you're getting into your 60s um and and older uh, health can fail employment can disappear um that leaves a lack of retirement savings or even debt in retirement well, that's right. And, you know, what about the relationships for your children? You know, as in the previous example there with, um, you know, Maggie and Ellie, um, you know, bringing in uh, in-laws, uh, whether they be son-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, the like, um, you know, 
children from previous relationships as they actually get older? How, how is that actually going to uh, change the dynamic? Obviously, you have to think about your longevity too um, and potential frailty. Um, advanced years may require advanced care, increased medical requirements, and none of this stuff is cheap. I mean, you're obviously into the, moving into the aged care space now, so you know about that. And giving money away at the beginning of a retirement is fantastic if you know how long you'll live, but retirement's going to be 25, 30 years. No one actually knows how long it could go on for. Well, it could go on for, but yeah, it could be a long time, much longer than you think. That's right. What if you gift something to your children for them to get into the property market? Then you in turn actually need to fund a bond to move into a care facility and that, uh, that gift is not liquid. That's the next point, um, reciprocity, because again, things change. If you've made some sort of handshake agreement where your child is meant to return some sort of financial assistance if or when required down the line, you might be in with the shock. You know, they may have jumped on the hedonic treadmill. They might become comfortable with their new circumstances that have emerged and you might need a hand when they've tied their hands. It's much easier to tell you no rather than not pay expensive school fees or take their family on a holiday. Yeah, certainly there's been a shift uh, to the here and now, but potential gift givers need to accept that just because a trend is occurring that they don't actually have to participate in that because life can be longer than we expect and requiring a lot more resources now. So if it's a gift, make sure that's what it is and it's well within the boundaries of long-term affordability. If it's a loan, spend a few dollars and have it legally addressed so you've got a paper trail. Yeah. And then the other thing is too, you know, what other uh, siblings do you need to take note of? You know, what's fair for one, is it fair for the others? And that can also create issues in families as well. We're just looking at one potential gift issue here. Mm. It might be the only the uh, the only child, but then you bring in more and more children. Yeah, there's a lot of issues there, which brings us, I guess, to financial abuse and aging. Aging brings vulnerability. You know, there's cognition, reflexes, all this kind of eyesight, hearing. They all inevitably decline. You got muscle mass always goes down by between three to five percent each decade from our 30s which means we're constantly losing strength balance are on decline um we like said there's some preventive measures we can take obviously uh, we're hearing more and more about the importance of protein for the elderly but uh try as we may in some areas we may be struck randomly by age-related disease and decline regardless and i guess if you think that's uh, negative um this just means vulnerability increases and vulnerability increases risk so you know you may need to outsource more tasks rely on other people for help um, worse some may see an elderly person in a diminished state as someone to be taken advantage of um, nefarious types everywhere so what's the best defense tristan you well we'd like to say it's a trusted professional partner you know we've um Sadly, we've personally run off a few skullduggerous types, but occasionally someone may place their trust in uh, the wrong professional. So, you know, advisors, lawyers, accountants, caregivers, cleaners, and various other service providers have all been caught exploiting the elderly. And these cases attract the most attention because they're the most likely to be prosecuted. But elder abuse is overwhelmingly likely to occur within a family or in a domestic setting. 
Yeah, so in 2016, Victorian Royal Commission into Family Violence heard that 32, sorry, 92% of elder abuse is carried out by adult children. So studies based on elder abuse call the lines uh, a little broader. Again, adult children are the largest group of perpetrators with a, a small gap. They're 31% sons and 29% daughters and 10% coming from other relatives. So 9% of abuse was from a spouse or partner, while 21% came from a combined category of neighbours, friends, workers, and informal carers. Yeah, I guess these variances, they may be explained by different categorisations of, of how the surveys are taken. But what's obviously clear by this is a family overwhelmingly makes up the largest group that's perpetrating elder abuse. And according to many sources, elder abuse is most likely to be financial abuse. And we obviously know why this is a big law, the money. Yeah, that's right, it's control, isn't it? Um, it's tough to get a handle on the figures, lost, scammed or stolen. In the US, estimates vary uh, with a MetLife study early last decade suggesting that $2.9 billion a year, um, but admittedly that may be higher. Um, TrueLink Financial, who cater to the vulnerable and elderly, suggests it's $36 billion a year. So, you know, why are the elderly exploited like this for materialism? I guess we'd uh, put on our sociologist hat and take a shot. It's like, unlike other societies, and in contrast to the way, um, as you'd say, humans have lived historically, our society isn't one where generations live together. Um, with that ongoing and everyday contact between the generations. So someone's needs and functions as a human being can be glossed over potentially. Um, this can lead to, I guess, a terrible habit of depersonalising someone and, and dismissing their needs. Yeah, needs and greeds. Um, there's also paternalism. So our society diminishes the elderly. You know, a person's family may think they know what's best better than the person themselves. And it's easy to see where it might start. Uh, you know, very valid concern over health or diet might creep into attempting um, to swoop in and police other areas and controlling other affairs. Um, it might not lead to financial abuse, but it can be abusive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the family member doing that policing may not be the person committing financial abuse, but as I say, if, if, as you say, if they create an environment of paternalism, the abused party, they can then find themselves unable to volunteer themselves as a victim. They may, may feel shame about that. And we know that seniors are often the target of scams. And if they don't feel they have the ability to approach someone without being either scolded or lectured, um, any abuse that they're suffering may go undetected for longer than it should. Well, that's right. Um, you know, and I suppose if we reflect on how we help people in the aged care field, we may not actually meet with the client who is being admitted to in, into the facility and we are dealing with family members. But ultimately, um, it is in our best interest to ensure that the client who is going into the care facility is looked after. And broadly not the interests of other family members who might believe that uh, they have some sort of hook into resources that might be needed to protect their parents. Yeah. And um, that's it, you know, abuse can, it, it can come in many, many forms, um, not just spending money. Um, you know, an elderly client might be terrorised by offspring over their advised portfolio. 
as well. So it extends further than that. So, you know, viewing their, their family portfolio, you know, they may think that the money should be invested by some other means. And, you know, this could be prompted by a know-it-all, do-it-yourself gold or Bitcoin, you know, market crash or economic calamity people. So these groups are strident in their beliefs and can be notoriously vocal. But ultimately, I suppose our role is to focus on, uh, you know, client's best interest. Yeah, I think the, the best solution is, is advice and working with the professional and as you're, as you're aging, because there's the opportunity for in more inclusiveness, you can have generational planning, you can bring the family in on the same page and have people understanding motivations and what you do um, and requirements in the investment philosophy from a very early point. And then, then if everyone understands these things, you don't have to worry about um, someone raging over this portfolio that they know nothing about. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, sadly, often the first time we meet, uh, you know, family members is to talk about their parents' care, whereas generally it's often not uh, them been on board at any stage. So, um, so one of the most obvious things that we as advisors can do is just to be alert about changes in withdrawals, um, just as an advisor can be the fire break between poor decisions during a temporary market plunge. So we can be counseled between poor gifting decisions or potential abuse. Yeah. Um, um, I guess yeah, the other thing is too, you guys um, can be a point of contact. If someone is having trouble dealing with a demanding family member, they may not feel they have the strength to bring the person account. So um, they may not believe they have the ability to say no. So here's Tristan's phone number. Yeah, you should be happy to take the call and, and set a recalcitrant family member straight. I think you've done that in the past, haven't you? Correct. I uh, haven't received any calls from family members that have requested from clients money. Um, I don't know if the number was given out, but I think it probably may have deterred them somewhat in asking. Yeah, because unless this sort of thing is dealt with and under control, it's going to become a major stressor mentally and financially and that's that's the kind of like the last thing that you want in retirement it's exactly right you know the value advice can be protection and, and having an advocate fighting in your corner this podcast is for informational purposes only and the information contained is of a general nature and may not be relevant to your particular circumstances the circumstances of each investor are different and you should seek advice from a professional financial advisor who can consider if particular strategies and products are right for you. In all instances where information is based on historical performance, it is important to understand this is not a reliable indicator of future performance. You should not rely on any material on the podcast to make investment decisions and should always seek professional advice. The hosts and guests of the podcast may have positions in securities mentioned or discussed. Mansell Financial Group is an authorised representative number 226266 and credit representative number 403187 of FYG Planners Proprietary Limited. AFSL ACL number 224543. Thank you for listening to Why Advice.